Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning. We're going to bust it. Like, we're going to bust it. I feel a little, now I feel better. All right. Nope. Yep. I'm hot. Not like look-wise, like there's a thing, buzz. Cooper, you're staring at me. It's all right. All right. That's better. Awesome. Um, All right. Uh, I talked to my wife a little bit this morning, and she said that this was a little on the heady side, so I'm going to try to not be as heady, but we're going to get into 1 John this morning, and uh, this is going to set the foundation for us as we move forward throughout the rest of this book. Kids can go to Elevate with Miss Tiffany. All right, if you are uh, first and second grade, um, you can head out to Elevate with Miss Tiffany and Mr. Travis. No, no, a a hearty no. All right, Uh, so... Uh, you can head out those ways. The rest of us, we're going we're gonna to get going this morning. Okay. Um, in 2002, uh, actually, I think I can make it without the glasses. We'll see. In 2002, in the 50th anniversary of the World Humanist Conference, uh, Humanist is, a, is a, uh, an atheistic organization, at their General Assembly of Humanists International, A statement was worked on and unanimously approved called the Amsterdam Declaration. And the first, there are, there are uh, seven bullet points to this declaration and the first of them reads this, humanism is ethical, it affirms the worth, dignity, and autonomy of the individual and the right of every human being to the greatest possible freedom compatible with the rights of others. Humanists have a duty to care, uh, a duty of care to all humanity, including future generations. Humanists believe that morality is an, is an intrinsic part of human nature based on understanding and a concern for others, needing no external sanction, right? Which means we don't need a God to tell us to be moral. Uh, Now, there are six more bullet points, definitive statements, uh, and then then it's concluded with this. The Amsterdam Declaration explicitly states that humanism rejects dogma and imposes no creed upon its adherents. Or we could say that we dogmatically reject dogma. Now, Aside from this being a fairly religiously dogmatic, anti-religious statement on dogma and the complexities that this would represent, this statement is actually so influenced and underscored by Christianity that it's really hard to tell where the external sanctions end and the intrinsic human nature begins. Holding these truths, this may sound familiar to you, holding these truths that all men are created equal, which if we're honest, some pretty big blind spots to that, but that's actually not self-evident. Those are not self-evident truths. And in fact, 
We can get into this a little bit later. The framers of our Constitution knew that, which is why it became Western or secular truths, because they did not want to conquer in the name of Christianity. Many of them were not Christian. These are not self-evident. The equality of mankind does not exist nor present itself in nature. It just doesn't. And Charles Darwin knew this very well. His grandfathers were both abolitionists, his wife a follower of Jesus, and he was actually fairly troubled but definitive in making this claim. One general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely multiply, vary, let the strongest live and the weakest die. Many other atheistic humanists, including Nietzsche himself, regretfully but definitively concluded that this is either a dog-eat-dog -dog world where only the strongest survive or you're religious. The first humanist on record, we'll give him that name, he wasn't, uh, he didn't go by humanist, but uh, Thales of Miletus, who was known as the father of science. He was an ancient Greek philosopher who basically compelled Greek philosophy to say, we no longer need to explain the world around us with gods and myths and those type of stories. We can actually look at nature as it presents itself to tell us how the world operates, who should be in charge, how we should do things. Nature presents itself, and we should have ample uh, solution for that as presented by nature. And one of his most popular statements that was then quoted by all of the other famous Greek philosophers was this, I am grateful to fortune for these three things, that I was born a human, not a beast, a man, not a woman, and a Greek, not a barbarian. I would dare to suggest that our friend Thales might not make it very long on Twitter. <laughs> now, here's the deal. I'm not here to bash conclusions of Humanist International, as I rather agree with a lot of what they're saying. That the compulsion and compelling to care for other humans and to value them, not to the ultimate freedom of personal autonomy, which the Bible would call slave to self, but that we should care and that all humans matter. I, I have a tremendous value for that. I would just love for them to cite their sources. They have a hard press that every person has complete autonomy to do whatever they see fit with their lives as long as it doesn't interfere with somebody else's complete personal autonomy to do whatever they see fit with their life. But the appeal to actually respect each other uh, and to, that each individual human is worthy of dignity and value is not found in nature. It is found in Scripture. On the other side, there's an internal battle in me with humanists claiming that it is human nature that we should care for all people uh, when it is not theirs to claim. But then there's another pull in me that I don't know who I'm more mad at, Christians who argue against that. As Christians, who often live within the external sanctions of the morals provided by Scripture, but sometimes need to really be compelled by Scripture to love and care for those who do not live by those and those who, who choose to do other. 
those who disagree with them, that they still have dignity and value and worth, especially historically when the church has been in a position of power. And so what I want this to do today is to set this, this groundwork again for what do we believe. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I asked you uh, as part of this challenge going into 1 John to examine and start thinking about what do you believe? What informs what you believe? What do you submit to for belief? We have all been disappointed. We have all been misrepresented. Um, We have all been lied to, and we all probably have lied as well. And we all seem to hold to some pretty big contradictions within the things, between the things that we believe and the things that we do. And we are incredibly finite beings. Even as Americans, even with Google, we are incredibly limited in our capacity of what we can know. And we also have tons of history that's woven into our presumptions and what we might think is self-evident. And so where is there some kind, uh, borrowing the language of our humanist friends, do we have some kind of external sanction that we can actually trust, that we can actually look to, that is actually a stake not in the sand but in firm ground uh, that we can trust? What can we know and how can we know it? So, I have an idea. Let's give this book a shot. Maybe? All right. Uh, It is written over a long period of history. Yes, written and uh, composed by men, but we, as followers of Jesus, believe that it is inspired by God. But there is a subject matter intrinsic to this book, nay, a person within these stories that we just might find compelling. So, let's turn to 1 John chapter 1 and read through verses 1 through 4 together. And this, I have no chance without glasses. All right. John starts off, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with, thanks be to God. Um, Not unlike our own day, the church in Ephesus, which is who John is writing to, was uh, facing a great deal of scrutiny, and some of it from even within the church. And most of this didn't come from the position of, is there a God or is there not a God? That was fairly well presumed in that day. But it came from the position of who really was this Jesus. And you had both the pagan and the Jewish thought kind of coming at this that Jesus wasn't really fully God or Jesus wasn't really fully man. And John begins this letter, which is actually, it could be a letter, but it's probably more like a sermon because he doesn't even start off with a greeting. There's no 
like, hey guys, this is John, and I just wanted to check in, grace and peace. He doesn't have any kind of a formal intro. He just goes in straight into this empirical, evidential explanation of the incarnation of the word of life. That it is eternal from the beginning, that it is a human, that he is divine, not created, but also that we touched him and saw him and heard him. We've seen with our own eyes, so he is also physical. And this is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. And this is going to be, again, this is, this is a little bit more doctrinal than we usually hit this morning. Uh, but I would submit to you that if you are struggling in your faith or examining the faith or really maybe even especially if you're wanting to grow in your faith, that taking time to examine and contemplate and, and just dwell in the idea that God has become man and dwelt among us, that this is how God revealed himself, that this might be um, the most beneficial thing we can do. And this is where John begins in his letter. N.T. Wright was a uh, college chaplain at, now, it's Worcester College, is part of Oxford. Is that how it's pronounced? If, it was, if, it, if we were in Boston, it'd be Worcester. But is it Worcester or Worcester? Okay. Obviously, I didn't go to Oxford. He was a chaplain, and every year he would greet the incoming students, the new undergraduate students, and he would sit down with them individually. And I'm trying to imagine what it must be like to have N.T. Wright as your chaplain, and they had no idea. I mean, he was younger. but, um, And he would all uh, come in to meet them, and he just wanted to introduce himself, let them know, if you guys need anything, I'm here, just, just so that you know. And inevitably... Um, what he would hear very, very often from these students was that I probably won't be seeing very much of you. Thank you for the introduction, but we probably won't be talking very much because I don't believe in God. And Wright said that he heard this response so much that he kind of developed a stock response to it and where he said, oh, well, that's interesting. Which God is it that you do not believe in? And they were kind of taken aback a little bit, and they all kind of, they there's an assumption that when we say the word God, all of us everywhere always mean the same thing. And so they would respond with a number of different things. Um, uh, something to the effect of this, you know, invisible sky fairy, maybe if they, were, if they were daring, this being who lived up in the sky, looking down disapprovingly at the world, occasionally intervening to do miracles, uh, and then to send bad people to hell, and then um, if there were some good people to invite them into his heaven. And he would hear this so much that, again, he developed another stock response to their objections that would take them by surprise. And he would say, well, I'm not surprised you don't believe in that God. I don't believe in that God either. Then to quell their fears and suspicion that, uh, that uh, Oxford might uh, allow atheist chapla- chaplains Wright would then fill in the blank for them by saying, no, I believe in the God that I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus tells Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What we believe as followers of Jesus is that Scripture, and that scripture makes clear that it is the person, uh, that the person of Jesus is the full revelation of God to man, as man. 
This is, again, this is the doctrine of the incarnation, that God has become man. So this morning, we're going to walk through this, as we begin to walk through this epistle or this letter or this sermon, whatever it, whatever it is, um, we're going to look at the doctrine of the incarnation, what it is and what it isn't, how it sets the foundation for the rest of the letter, and I promise we're not going to, we're not going to get too far into the weeds here. Well, we may, um, but we will work our way out of the weeds into application, I promise. Um, and here's the deal. You are not required to have like a doctoral level of Greek biblical scholarship to understand the doctrine of the incarnation. In fact, I would suggest that the incarnation is better accepted through simple faith, not simplistic faith, but a simple faith and understanding to take Jesus at his word. Because sometimes the more we try to bring this into our ability to uh, contemplate it and say which molecules are divine and which molecules are human and try to work it in a way that we can understand, that's when we start to get ourselves into trouble. There is an essence where we can rest in what Jesus has said about himself and continue then to grow and learn about what this fully means, uh, which is my only Latin phrase, fideus corns et delectum. Anybody remember? Faith, seeking understanding. Good job. Faith-seeking understanding. We take what Jesus says by faith, and then we keep asking questions and grow. So I want to give a brief understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation. Where do we see it in Scripture? Uh, And then we're just going to bring out a few of the implications at the end, and and then something to uh, practice this week. The incarnation deals specifically with the person of Jesus, that he is the full revelation of God in human form. That God took on flesh, he dwelled among us. Uh, John writes his gospel account to the Greeks, and he says it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see not only the evidence of the Trinity begin to unfold there, but we also see that Jesus was fully God. He was in the beginning. He was not created. Jesus is fully God, fully revealed as fully man. Fully cheesesteak sandwich. There are a number of heresies that actually surround this, and it might be easier to explain what the incarnation is based on how the heresies play out, kind of balancing against what it's not. Um, and I don't use the word heresy lightly. Please, please know that. I don't throw that around. I don't like dictate everybody a heresy. I really don't even try to use that word very often. Um, but there's a, that's a significant word. It's not just a difference of doctrine. It is a fundamental misrepresentation, a mi- misrepresentation of what God reveals in Scripture. Um, so there are heresy statements that surrounded the church in Ephesus about the humanity of Jesus or, and or about the divinity of Jesus. So a couple of examples of ancient heresies uh, so that we can kind of get a groundwork of what we are talking about. The first one, uh, docetism. This is the idea that Jesus was not actually fully human that he was more of a divine apparition. There's, a, there's a, a, a variance of that called adoptionism, where Jesus is a human that is really good, and then at his baptism, he is appointed divine, and then that div, uh, divination leaves him before the crucifixion. Um, this, is, this is simply a form of Gnosticism, um, and Gnosticism, this is why this is important. Gnosticism seeks to separate the physical and the spiritual. The physical is either to be ignored or to be detested. 
and it is the spiritual that is really important. And there's a couple of different responses, and I'm not a Gnostic scholar. Uh, I'm not a scholar in any field, but, uh, but Gnosticism basically means you can be spiritual and not religious. You heard that, right? You're right to roll your eyes at that. I would. I do. Um, but that, that's the spiritual realm that matters. Christ being fully man doesn't mean it's not just the spiritual realm that matters. It means the physical realm is also part of the spiritual realm. Our bodies matter. Things matter. That God became fully physical in this world. Um, now, not only are there implications, but also Scripture will, will definitely tell us that God took on flesh to redeem the flesh. And if he did not take on flesh, then we don't have an adequate substitute for our sinful selves. Uh, Athanasius, another ancient scholar, summed it up this way. What is not assumed, meaning, meaning what is not taken on, cannot be redeemed. And if Jesus was not fully human, that he both suffered and hurt and got nervous and felt pain and experienced the fullness of humanity, then all of those things that we experience as a part of donning the human flesh have, have actually not been fully redeemed. And we just spend our time seeking the spiritual. It also means that God would not be acquainted with our suffering. That he would not know what we go through. That he could not identify with us in our weaknesses, which Hebrews tells us. He identifies with us in every way in our weakness. But without sin. The other side of this is that Jesus was not fully God. So I'm just going to hint at these because we're going to get back into them in, in 1 John chapter 2 when we talk about the atonement. But the other side of this is that Jesus was not fully God, that he was a created being. Uh, and this is more along the lines of Arianism. And if you're an expert in any of these ways and you want to correct me afterwards, feel free afterwards, um, but not right now. Arian, uh, Arius developed this in the early 300 ADs, uh, and this suggests that Jesus was created by God the Father. He was among the greatest of creations, but he was a creation nonetheless, more like an angelic being. Now, um, in conservative circles, we can get kind of nervous talking about Jesus as human and how fully human was Jesus. And we like to, you know, in some ways, we need to realize that Jesus did not walk six inches off the ground. He, he, his feet got dirty and calloused. He got hurt. He bled. He was a, he was a um, carpenter, and I don't know if he ever hit his thumb and called out to himself. Uh, uh, but Jesus was fully human. He got dirty. He came into the muck and the mud. And on the other side of this, we see that Jesus was just human and stopped short of him being actually God, that he was a good teacher, which then leaves us towards self-achievement, that it is still up to us to achieve the divine. We don't have an atonement for our sin, which Paul addresses. And he's like, because if you take out the physical reality of Jesus or the divinity, then he wasn't raised from the dead. And if he wasn't from, raised from the dead, then Paul has a word for us basically saying uh, in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then we're still dead in our sins and our trespasses, and your faith is in vain. And a more progressive side says we just need to fight for justice and human rights, and that's what's critical and important, not that our sins for, are atoned for. And let me tell you something. Yes, 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 follower of Jesus, we need to fight for justice and for human rights, and you better believe that we need to be advocates of that because of the incarnation. 
not indifferent to it. This view is still manifest in different forms today. Uh, Again, docetism can sometimes find its way into conservative forms when we're hesitant about talking about the humanity of Jesus. And and Arianism can find its way in progressive circles uh, where the church would just like to make Jesus a good teacher who taught about justice and sacrifice and loving one another but stopped short of being the God who gave himself up as the atonement for our sins. There's an exchange, kind of a funny exchange, several years ago. There was a woman uh, who is uh, Marilyn Sewell, who was a Unitarian uh, minister who uh, claimed Christianity, and she was doing an interview with Christopher Hitchens, who was the renowned uh, atheist who wrote a book, God is Not Great. And she said to him, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make a distinction? And, and basically, um, Hitchens had talked about just how bad religion was. And she said, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens' response was, I would say that if you do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, then you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. To which Sewell responded, I'd like to talk about something else. What we see revealed in scriptures that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us from Isaiah 7 and from Matthew 1, that he is the word become flesh and dwelling among us in John 1, that he, according to Paul in Philippians 2, and man, I wish I could do this better than I can, uh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Jesus invited people to worship him. When they bowed the knee to him, he did not stop them. He proclaimed that he and the Father were one. Not like several uh, uh, pharaohs and others who claimed to be image bearers of God, but that he and the Father were actually one. He claimed that he could forgive sins in Mark's gospel. In John's gospel, when Thomas asked how they could know the way to the Father, he didn't, like every other prophet in the history of every other religion, say, this is the way and let me show you the way. He said, I am the way. The idea that Jesus never claimed to be God takes more mental gymnastics than the Olympics. And yet, Jesus also suffered. He felt pain. He wept. He showed emotion. He loved and cared for people. He was homeless. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was sold out. He was misunderstood. He was falsely accused. He was a victim of injustice. He was Jewish, so he was a cultural minority ostracized by the Roman people, but he also healed a Roman centurion 
and ate with tax collectors, so he was rejected by the Jewish people as well. He grew in wisdom and stature. If you haven't listened to the song, uh, Was You a Boy Like I Was Once by Rich Mullins, you should. Jesus was a, boy, a little boy. He grew up in wisdom and stature. Jesus was sexually celibate and, let, and yet somehow lived a full life. And also, as God, he was the bridegroom, the husband of a bride who would be incredibly unfaithful. So if you've ever wrestled with the question or cried out in anguish or frustration, but God, do you know what I go through? But God, do you know what it's like to be me? The answer is a profound yes, I do. Fully God, fully human. 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon, the church overwhelmingly ratified the view called the hypostatic union that Christ has two distinct natures, that within his person he possesses everything that is true of both the human and divine natures. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, born, uh, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, there's a lot more. We'll continue to unpack this. This is the foundation that John sets forth as he goes into this assurance uh, to this church in Ephesus. But we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Um, this morning, my goal is not to win arguments about in the incarnation. Okay, I want to win arguments about the incarnation. Um, that's something I have to deal with. But my hope, genuinely, is for this to be invitational. That we can bask in the fullness of all of this that this doctrine makes known. All that what happens when the God of the universe becomes man. Not only just man, but the kind of person we would walk past and ignore. The one that all of us would look down on. Potentially. And all that that means to the lowest of the low. And I want to invite us this week to bask in what does it mean that the word took on flesh and dwelled among us. That the life, the eternal life has been, manifest, has been made manifest. Here are some of the implications that this means to let this rumble around in your head. First, that God is the seeker, not us. The God of the Bible makes himself known. He does not leave it to us to find the path to him. He makes himself known to us. And he makes himself known in the only way that we can understand it. It says that he condescends, so he speaks on our level. There's no way he could fully reveal all that he is, but as much as we could possibly understand it, he comes as a human. As one of his creation, he knows what it is to be us. And I love a pastor I heard during seminary uh, that, that there wasn't an ascension every night after supper. Like he, he slept on the ground. He lived in the neighborhood. He moved in. He knows what it is to be human, becoming, becoming what he alone could redeem. And yet, fully God so that he can be our perfect advocate to stand before the Father. 
Something else that this means is that Jesus is historical. Now, you may think, well, what difference does that make? Huge. The invisible sky fairy became visible. All right, if you've ever heard, I hear this comment all the time. You still believe in the, the invisible sky fairy? And let me tell you something. There's no argument in that argument. There's no fact or validation. There's not really even a, like, they're, they're not even saying anything. It's just to make you feel dumb and to heap shame on you. And it's very powerful. <laughs> and I hate that. But we have a problem with that. History. This is not just a make-believe invisible sky fairy. The invisible sky fairy took on flesh. We have history. Jesus lived in time and history. And any serious historian, atheist, Buddhist, Islam, any, atheist, any uh, genuine historian acknowledges not only the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, but also when pressed, you have to acknowledge the resurrection. That doesn't mean there's faith or that they believe in him, but that this historical event took place. He was real. The life of Jesus was historically documented. And you know what John tells us? We heard him. We touched him. We could smell him. He was here. This, this first little four verses, which I would, I'm going to encourage you to memorize, it, you can be, I, like, it's a little confusing, that John, he just keeps going over this. But what is obvious is that John experienced something. John touched and heard and saw and knew this life made manifest. Jesus is our mediator between God and us. We can now stand in the presence of God because of Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's our atonement. We'll get into that again in chapter 2. But essentially, what we say every week, that he lived the life that we were supposed to live and then died the death that we should have died for the life that we actually lived. And then he rose again, defeating sin and death, so that as it is with him, so will it be with those who trust in him. And that is glorious news. He is our mediator. He is our joy. He is the deepest root cause of our fellowship with one another, which we'll complete this passage next week. Our communion with God and with each other. The implications of the incarnation are, are vast. And so the application here, this fall, what we want to work on, the title of this series uh, that we're going through First John is So That You May Know. John is writing. If you go through and read First John and count how many times he says, I write this so that you may know. He's writing to those who are struggling. He's writing to those who are doubting. He's writing to those who need to be encouraged in their faith, who are getting pelted from both sides. And he wants to write to us as well who have this in common with these people so that we can be assured. And this, this fall, we're just going to work slowly but surely to build up our testimony. Now, this is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying our testimony in that telling other people how we got saved. I'm saying our testimony of what we believe what we are experiencing day to day, what we see as true reality, what we tell each other, what we tell ourselves, what we share with the world around us. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to turn our eyes. A couple weeks ago, we looked at what do we believe and what informs that? What do we actually submit to? What external sanctions, right? This week, I want you to wrestle with what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? 
And why does that matter? Um, I was talking to uh, a guy, not really a friend, um, a guy. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. And he said, you know, I don't believe, I have a hard time believing we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to be standing at the gates and give us some kind of doctrinal test. Like he's going to test our doctrine and our theology. That's ridiculous to me. And I said, yeah, I, I can see that. That's ridiculous to me too. Um, here's what I do believe though. I believe we're going to get there and he's going to say, do you know me? Yeah, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, for sure. But when we walk into his presence, I mean, he gives kind of a warning shot across the bow in, in Matthew 7, which ought to scare us before it comforts us. When, when Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all this stuff in your name? And do you remember what Jesus says? I, didn't, I don't even know you. Can you imagine standing before the king of the universe, the God of all gods, the one by whom, for whom, and through whom all things were made, and telling him what you did? Yeah, but Jesus, look what I did. To know him is to walk into his presence with awe and wonder and worship and praise, falling at his feet for his kindness and his compassion and his mercy. The incarnation of Jesus literally turns the world upside down. The one who sits on the throne of heaven, who has taken the form of a servant. No other religion believes this. The strong did not come to tell us how to be strong. He, came, uh, he became weak. Any culture in existence, any, the, the, the nations that signed this uh, Amsterdam document at the very beginning, any culture in existence that values human rights does so solely because of Christianity and because of the Judeo-Christian scriptures. They do not, most decidedly do not hold these because it's intrinsically revealed anywhere in nature. The way God operates in this world is so upside down. It's not the strong who see him and know him, but the weak. It's not the accomplished to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven, it's the poor in spirit. It's not the self-righteous that will be comforted, it's those who mourn. It's not the YOLO who will inherit the earth, it's the meek. It's not the self-sufficient that will be satisfied, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be made right. So this week, I want us to examine what we believe about Jesus. Uh, I'd encourage you to read this passage over and over. I'd encourage you to memorize this passage. It's a little tricky, but you can do it. And the more you do it, the more it just kind of drips on your heart and your mind. Next week, we'll complete this text with the implications of community as we celebrate 15 years as a church. But take time this week to memorize John's words, to look through other evidences in Scripture of the Incarnation. They're everywhere. Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, every letter that Paul writes, Jesus himself, uh, it's everywhere. And let it, what do you really believe about the person and work of Jesus? And if you want to get really fancy, you can write a paragraph out about, I believe, and then write it. You don't have to use like big fancy words. And here's the deal. This is where the meat hits the potatoes. Um, we're not just going to do this about Jesus. I want you to do it with Jesus. Um, today's my wife's birthday. She's... 
We were, she was 15 years old when we planted this church. Um, she, because she is wonderful and loving and like Jesus, she gave me a list of things that she likes to do um, because, because of me. Um, and she gave me this list of things that she likes and she, she would like to do. And it's, and it's vast and it's, every, it's, a, it's a number of different things. Here's some restaurants that I like. Here's, you know, all this kind of stuff, um, which is very much like Jesus. Jesus doesn't just go, hey, worship me and you've got to figure out what I like. He tells us what he wants from us. And so this is what my wife did. Now, I can walk through that list and just check them off as we go. And how great of a birthday do you think my wife would have if I just kind of towed along and paid for her meal here and paid for her meal here? It would not go well. I, let, me tell, let me spoil the ending for you. It would not go well. Don't just study and learn about Jesus for academic knowledge. Don't do it so you can, so you can beat down a bunch of humanists or so you can show up the atheist or so you can tell your friend who believes the same things with just a little bit difference how much smarter and more holy you are than they. Learn about Jesus with Jesus. Ask him questions. I talk to him in the car all the time. Um, so if you ever see me driving, uh, and, and, and then he, he gets on to me every once in a while when I'm driving. Um, but, but sit in the presence of Jesus. We're made to walk in God's, presence, in God's presence. The incarnation reveals that we are made to be in his presence, and he desires to be in ours. And so bask in that. Be in awe of him. Talk to him. Invite him into your day, into your study, into your prayer, into your commute, into your meals. And this week, commune with Jesus as you learn about him, as you ask questions, as you allow him to reveal himself as he revealed himself in, in the book of 1 John. Let's pray. Jesus, there are a number of things that uh, I am relieved about in this. One, that you did not remain a mystery, uh, that you made known to us who you are, that you came in form that we can understand, uh, that you made yourself fully known in human form, that we can communicate with you, that you are historical. And so when I wrestle and struggle with doubts, I remember the fact that you actually existed in time and history. Uh, and then the other thing that comforts me with this, God, is that, uh, and as revealed in Christ, that you have immeasurable grace and patience. And you did not come to demand our perfection. You came to be perfect on our behalf and invite us to know you and trust you. You didn't remain just this mysterious sky fairy in the sky that just interferes on occasion to send bad people to hell and good people to heaven. You came down. You appeared. You became one of us, the lowest of the low. Nothing about you that we would, that we would be in awe or wonder if we were to look at you but you took the form of a servant. And so your grace and your mercy and your presence as you walk with us is immeasurable, but you want us to walk with you. You invite us to know you and trust you and be with you and walk with you and follow you and become more like you. So I pray this week that we would do that. And I pray that that would start even now as we take communion as a body. 
rejoicing in what you have done to present us one day holy, spotless, without blemish. So, Lord, hear our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.